Welcome to Genuine Life Recovery with me, Jody Stevens. We're here to help you and your loved ones overcome addictions and other addiction-related mental health challenges. In this show, we dive into the physical, emotional, psychological, medical, and spiritual aspects of addiction, mental health, recovery, family dynamics, codependency, and more. Hey friends, welcome back to Genuine Life Recovery. My name's Jody Stevens. Today I'm joined by Helen Hicks. Helen is a licensed therapist. She's also the host of another podcast called What Would Helen Say? So today we're going to find out what Helen would say. So Helen, <laughs> thanks for hanging out. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Jody. It's a pleasure. You're in New Jersey. Correct. That is... <laughs> far away from Reno. What's life, what's <laughs> life like over there right now? Um, right now, well, it's a nice sunny day and it's not too hot. I think we're in the low 80s. So right now is good. Right now is good. Okay, good. Hey, by the way, friends, please share this show with anybody you know struggling with addiction or other mental health challenges. You can share it on social media. You can also listen on iTunes and Spotify and Amazon or your favorite listening app or by clicking podcast at jodystevens.org. Genuine Life Recovery is sponsored by my friends Don and Don at joshesheart.org, a homeless outreach bringing hope, love, and awareness to those afflicted by addiction. In a world where those suffering can feel invisible, they've made it their mission to let them know you matter. You can find out more at joshesheart.org. Today we're going to be talking about some of the mental health challenges that people are facing today. We're going to be talking about some ways to heal and help ourselves, and we're going to be talking about addiction. We're going to be talking about parenting as well, which I know, Helen, you said that was one of your specialties. So yes. tell me, Helen, you're so you're a licensed therapist. Give me kind of the skinny on, you know, what you do and, and all that stuff. So I'm a licensed professional counselor in the state of New Jersey. Uh -huh. And um, I have my own private practice, which I've had for over 12 years, but I have over 25 years being in the mental health field. Um, I started out working in group homes and kind mm -hmm. of worked through the ranks there. Um, worked in residential facilities, and then, you know, kind of grew from a lot of parents asking if I worked with adults. <laughs> so right. the, hence the birth of my private practice. A lot of the clients coming through my practice are generally with a diagnosis of depression or anxiety. I have a few bipolar clients. Well, you know, and it's interesting because you mentioned anxiety, depression, bipolar, and those are Three of like the top things that co-occur with addiction. Most people that have those, like when they have an addiction, they're treating those things. But you know what I mean? And they don't, right. they don't, a lot of times they don't know. Absolutely. But I honestly believe that people help themselves in whatever way is accessible to them at the time. So, you know, if you're 14 and you don't understand that what you're experiencing is anxiety, then how would you know that you should be seeking out a professional counselor? <laughs> right. And that's so true. And that's why it's part of my goal is to kind of alleviate the shame and stuff around it, because it's like, OK, you were trying to do things right, even though it may look dysfunctional to other people. It's kind of a normal reaction a lot of times. Right. In the case of dealing with trauma or anxiety, depression or things like that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. 
So um, I'm a firm believer that as human beings, we are hardwired for um, Mm self-preservation and therefore whatever we choose to do is truly rooted in our own desire to help ourselves. So I don't think there are people out there who are looking at, you know, drugs, alcohol or anything else and saying, ooh, I just want to go down. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) You know, know, I I don't think that's people's first thought. You know, I, I understand if people are in certain circumstances and they start feeling suicidal, that's something different. But when people first start experiencing, you know, whatever hardships that they have going on, their first desire truly is, how do I help myself? Right. Yeah. No, that's totally true. So your podcast, what would Helen say? So you started this because of the the shortage of help available. In 2021, so this is like still tail end of pandemic. Yeah. I, I personally, as just one single professional in the state of New Jersey, which, you know, isn't the biggest state to begin with, mm-hmm. um, I had over 1,200 people reach out to me. Oh my God. You know, in that year. And ultimately, I was able to help and connect 50. Wow. <laughs> you know, because, you know, the, the way my practice is set up, and anyone who's in the mental health field, unless you're doing a lot of group therapy, you can only see one person at a time, one hour at a time. Exactly. And, So, of course, that puts a larger strain on the mental health, you know, industry than it does for medical practices. I think people definitely underestimate the number of mental health professionals that are required in order to meet the demand that truly exists and the limitations that are naturally placed upon our practice. Did you see then, because I was talking to somebody and he said, yeah, you know, like our caseloads have doubled. So with COVID, what was it like before that? Were you still kind of slammed or do you feel like COVID just shot the mental health challenges through the roof? Do you think it doubled or tripled or what? Oh, yeah. I have no idea what the exact number is, but through the roof, yeah. Uh, Like uh, before COVID, I was, you know, fairly satisfied with where my caseload was because it was my practice and I'd always had control over how many, you know, clients I was willing to see and what my work hours would be. But then, of course, when you take out travel time to and from the office and you say, oh, you know, I have more time. I can fit more people in, you know, um, and especially with kids not actually leaving to go to school. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I found myself with almost every minute of my day scheduled. Wow. What are some of the increases in some of the mental health challenges that people are coming to you with that, you know, since COVID happened? COVID probably was um, almost there at tipping the scale. Mm -hmm. And then with everything that's happened since then with, you know, um, all the political issues within our country, you know, Mm -hmm. the war in Ukraine. um, I'm sorry, there's one other thing that was on my mind. (laughs) You know, it's hard to keep track of them all. 
<laughs> right, right, right. You oh, could throw the- in like fires and earthquakes and, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, tsunamis and, you know, riots. And I know it's it's um, it's a little bit crazy. That's for sure. Beyond absolutely, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so it triggered my memory, which was the violence, you know, the increase in violence across our country. All yeah. of this has really led to a lot of people feeling extremely anxious. And now we're experiencing the post-COVID, but then prior to that, all this stuff's going on and people are isolated, right? So, you know, you've got that going on. I had one guy tell me, you know, a therapist, he, he was saying, especially for young people, he said it's hard to make the hope argument because they're like stuck at home and you're like, okay, you got to do your homework. You got to do this stuff. And they're like, but the world's going mad. I can't be with my friends. I have to do this stuff online. Like why bother? Which is why I tell all my clients, you need to have something to believe in. You need to have a belief system that is greater than you, you know, and part of my own belief system, it is really focused in on living a life that is based in love, joy, peace, and happiness. And if I can focus on creating that for myself and then how I can extend that to others to help them to be able to live in a place of their own, you know, love, joy, happiness, and peace, like that's where the hope is. Because if more people were living in a state of love and peace, we wouldn't have all these other things to worry and be anxious about. Right. No, that's so true. It's, it's, you know, for me, it's, it's the belief in God, you know, and that was really what pulled me out of my addiction. What I would say really would save me. And then from there, I feel like God showed me ways to learn to heal, but you're right in, in it's, you know, we think of like the man's search for meaning, right? What um, right. the guy that was in the the concentration Victor, camp, Victor yeah, Frankel. Victor Frankel, and then and then um, I just posted a thing on Deutschewski or whatever. You know, he was saying something about you know it's not. What did he say? I gotta find it. Yeah, he says the mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for, finding meaning and purpose, right? Because I think so much of the challenges that we face is in dealing with control, right? We want to control things rather than sort of giving certain things up to someone higher than ourselves, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And that's, you know, a whole basis for anxiety that people are focused on how can they control the things that genuinely are out of their control. Um, I remind people all the time, the only person you can control is you. And even with that, you don't have control over the things that happen to you or around you. You just have control over how do you want to respond to it. No, and that's perfect because so much of anxiety, like you said, is caused by things outside of ourselves. So like Mm -hmm. for me, it was kind of like this free floating anxiety where it was just I was always anxious because if our sense of self is defined by things outside of ourselves, we're always going to be 
anxious because we can never control those <laughs> things, right? Like, right. I can't control what you think of me. I can't control what's happening outside of myself. That's a continual source of, of anxiety. And, you know, the whole external locus of control, which is, or locus of control, which is, you know, for me, it was kind of this core of codependency. And it took me years, <laughs> years <laughs> to let go of that. As a therapist, what are some techniques for that? Definitely within the realm of CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and cognitive behavioral therapy is just breaking down um, cognitive part, which is the thoughts. What yeah. are the thoughts that, you know, you entertain? You know, it's that self-talk. It's that, you know, whatever statement that pops up in the back of your head when something doesn't go your way. Um, and then the behavior part is, well, what are your actions? So. Right. It's definitely taking inventory of what are those thoughts and what are those behaviors that are reiterating those negative message that you're constantly carrying with yourself that causes you to feel less than, you know, and if you can identify those, challenge them and then work on changing them into validating and supporting statements that truly help to push you in the direction that you really want to be in like that's the essence of cognitive behavioral therapy <laughs> right right it's it's changing you know first starting with the thought patterns you know changing the negative thought patterns and then changing the negative actions and i suppose it could work both ways too. <laughs> you know, if you're a, an action person, like do something different, you know, start by doing something different and then you'll think differently or think differently right. and then you'll do something differently. Like, uh, you know, but either way, right. That's, yeah. and, and that's a challenge. And I feel like we need people to help us through that, especially if we've never learned how to work through that stuff. The image I have in my head is kind of like that, you know, angel and devil sitting on your shoulder. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, when you're first coming into therapy, that devil is massive. Y you yeah. know, <laughs> that devil can like reach up to the ceiling all by itself while your angel may be microscopic. You know, when somebody's telling you, hey, just think positive thoughts, you're like, what? <laughs> Like that is a totally foreign concept. So mm -hmm. it's really not as easy as, oh, just think positive thoughts and keep those affirmations going. Yeah. You need someone to constantly help you and to validate you and to support your efforts to shrink that devil and to you know build up that angel. Because if you had the ability and the resources already, you would have done this for yourself. That's true. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And it's not only, you know, we need to have supportive people right around us. So that's huge. And then trying to work on getting rid of some of the negative influences, which can be a challenge as well, right? Having better boundaries, working on changing the thought patterns. The thing with that is that it just takes time. I think I think the reason support is so important is because it's it's a trial and error and it's super easy to want to just throw out the towel and give up. You know, I know for me it took years and years and years. <laughs> you know, to to get to where I was continually understanding the negative thought patterns and then I used gratitude a lot like going back to the gratitude which then started to help relieve the negative thought patterns, but 
you have to keep working on it and not, you know, practice sort of the self-compassion so that when you do mm-hmm. have like what I call, uh, you know, a behavioral relapse that you don't <laughs> beat yourself up. Right. And I tell my clients all the time that, you know, beating yourself up, guilt tripping yourself is never going to help you. You right. know, um, I relate that to taking a bat to a broken leg and saying, get better, get better, get better. Like, no, bashing yourself when you are already feeling broken and beat down is not going to help you get better. In those moments, you need to treat yourself with that kindness and compassion, which essentially is self-love, you know, in order to get to a point where you can consistently be in a positive place and you can see yourself positively and you can see the world around you positively. But that only happens if you are actually engaging in self-love. Right. Now, that's so true. You know, you had mentioned in the outline that you sent me, you know, some talking points and things we were going back and forth, just about unlocking the power to heal ourselves. And I think this is an important piece, especially with post-COVID, the way our world is going, also the shortage in the mental health industry right now. What are some, kind of talk to me about that, some ways we can do that. Everything truly starts with belief. After all my years of being in this field, I know 100%, you know, certainty that this world runs on belief. Whatever shows up in our lives is a matter of what we believe, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about our environment, what we believe about the people around us and our communities. Like that's what constantly shows up, some form of what we believe. So when you take that and you apply it to healing yourself, it requires you to really dive deep into, well, what do you believe about you? Because Mm -hmm. it's showing up in your life. You know, whatever forms that may be taking, whether it's addiction, it's depression, anxiety, bipolar, all the rest of this stuff, it's always going to stem from what you already believe about yourself. If you see yourself as broken, as you see yourself as less than, if you see yourself as, you know, undeserving and all these other things that, you know, people put upon themselves and they say, well, I'm not because this was my history and these are the things that I did. And, you know, this is what I didn't have even. People put these limitations on themselves and then they act according to those limitations that they've placed on themselves. And sometimes the limitations that our society have placed yeah. on us that, well, you're less than because, <laughs> you know, right. Um, and it truly is up to you as to whether you are going to accept those statements and someone else's perceptions of who you are or who you should be, or if you are going to break away from that and say, no, that is not how I choose to define me and see me and, you know, act in that manner. I see me as different. I see me as empowered and worthwhile. And again, it, it comes back to your belief system as well. People need to have some sort of belief in something bigger than themselves. Right. And I think also we need to have as many healthy people in our lives as we can. A lot of times, if you come from trauma or abuse, it's so hard to break those negative patterns. And if particularly if you're still around, you know, that environment, I always say you can't 
how do I say, you can't see what's wrong until you see what's right. You know, so when we're surrounded by things that are right and people that are healthy, sometimes it's easier to see what's wrong. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that's a next step in that process because Mm -hmm. so many times I have worked with people and our time together has been cut short because they couldn't see themselves as deserving of something better than the conditions they were currently in, you know? And so that's the next step. If you can see yourself as deserving of something better than what you currently have, that's what helps motivate you to say, you know what, this situation really isn't working for me. This relationship isn't working for me. This job isn't working for me. Like whatever that environment may be, because subconsciously we all seek out what's familiar. And if abuse is familiar, then that's what we're subconsciously seeking out. It's challenging to get to that point you know, and to help people get to that point. I know one of the things we use in addiction recovery is like motivational interviewing, which is really like trying to help people understand. So so let's just take an addiction, like what are you getting from it? So not just, not just looking at like helping people see, not just looking at how this is harming you, but how is this helping you? And I think sometimes that can be super helpful. Because we kind of are able to look at that and say, um, you know, does this really make me better? Does this really meet my needs? Right. And I know that there are a lot of people where that becomes a very difficult question for them to answer Mm -hmm. because it can be difficult to acknowledge there are some positives in that. Not to say that they're actual good things, but there are things that certain people may like about yeah. being in that position in their life, that there's less responsibility, that you know, that there aren't as many things to do, there aren't as many people relying on them. You know, things of that nature where they feel like, hey, there's some comfort in being in this place and I'm kind of scared of what things would look like if I'm not here. Right. I I was reading about someone who was saying they had a client that was a victim of just constant abuse. And she just said, you know, I'd rather be with the devil I know. And and it was comfortable for her. And it was all she knew. And she knew how to she knew how to manage in that world. She knew how to deal with violence. And so she didn't want to change it. And you know, we, we, (laughs) there's not a lot you can do other than to just, like you said, try to, try to point people towards looking at things and seeing themselves like in a different way, in a more positive way that's like, Hey, I deserve more, you know? And, And like I said that, you know, there have been clients in my past where I just had to terminate, you know, our professional relationship because I was just like, as long as you're in a place where you're like, I'm okay with this. I don't think I want or need better. Then I don't know what I can do for you. Well, let me ask you, Helen, did you, do you have a personal story of healing or what moved you towards therapy and mental health? Growing up, my 
mother was a paranoid schizophrenic. However, we didn't find this out until I was in college. Oh my goodness. I had another gal on this show who had the same thing. And it was so interesting just to hear her story because they were always running. Like her dad would kidnap her. And I mean, it was very chaotic. It was a very chaotic Mm. existence. I don't know if yours was like that, but. No, I mean, there was stability because, um, my parents remained married, even though, you know, I always argued they shouldn't have. But <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. So my father was very much the stable one. Uh-huh. He, you know, he kept everything um, as normal as he possibly could. But my mom, she, you know, growing up, there was four of us in the home. There are six kids total, but four of us who were like around the same age and grew up together. And we had that sense of validating each other. That, you right. know, mom, mom's weird. What, what's mom doing now? This is strange and this is crazy. And, you know, that discomfort of kind of being left alone with her, you know, everybody was kind of on the same page. Oh, no, I don't think I want to yeah. go with mom. You know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so we had that sense of validation that there's something not right about mm-hmm. this situation. But of course, none of us really knew what it was because, you know, in our educational system, there isn't any talk about mental health and educating people about what's quote unquote normal and what's abnormal and that sort of thing. So there is no one else that you could double check, you know, hey, (laughs) what is this? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and especially back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know when you grew up, I should say. I'm from the the (laughs) 70s in Alaska. And so... You know, you didn't talk about anything at all, let alone addiction and alcoholism and all the stuff that, that, you know, causes so many generations after generations of problems. But anyway, continue. No, absolutely. So I'm right there with you. Um, And people just didn't talk about it. There was no sense of education or knowing and, you know, anything like that. So it was in college, you know, when I had a psych class And, you know, we're just doing an overview of the DSM. And I ran across that diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenic. And I was like, oh, my God, this is my mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I went home and I showed my dad. I was like, Dad, read this. And he goes, oh, my gosh, this is your mom. Wow. (laughs) And so, you know, of, of course, you know, I tried to have that conversation with my mom and say, hey, this is what I think is going on with you because my mom, um, like, like I said, she was paranoid. She always thought people were following her. People were yeah. listening, you know, to her. She thought people could see us through the TV, you know. Um, so like every window in our house was covered. The TVs were all covered. You were only allowed to watch the TV for a certain amount of time. Cause after that mm. people were watching and listening and like, there was yeah. just all this craziness, you know, that was constantly going on. And so many times we dismissed it as, you know, just mom's crazy. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) So but you know, that psychology class was a moment for me of making sense of everything, you know, coming to a place where, wow, all this stuff that just felt so random and out of place. And I didn't have a framework to understand what was going on. Because in my mid teenage years, my mom kind of centered in on me as the enemy, you know, oh, no. and she, 
yeah, she became paranoid about me that I was doing stuff to her and I was sabotaging her. So she became very mean <laughs> towards right. me. I don't think any of my other siblings had experienced this because I was the youngest and most of them had already left the house. It was really difficult for me to understand why my mom was treating me like this and why my mom seemed to hate me. That psychology class came, became the start of me understanding what I had experienced and then my own desire to, you know, learn more and not just, you know, to help other people, but really to help myself. Yeah. Um, so as I continued in my journey of education and, you know, going through getting my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, you know, things of that nature, part of my programs was I had to do my own therapy. So, you know, yeah. um, working with the therapist then really helped me to see all the different ways that my mother's behavior towards me had shaped my perceptions of myself and my perception of relationships. And um, while, you know, that therapy helped me in different ways, of course, it wasn't the end of my journey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can say that um, as recently as like 2018, 2019, you know, I, I've done even more work on myself and coming to see how, hey, there's still some stuff there. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, I understand with clients that, you know, something can put you on a path to starting the work, but you have no idea how long <laughs> it'll be before you get to a place of feeling like, yes, you know, I've arrived to this place of healing. I, I think it's more so a journey than it is a destination. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, that that is a, a difficult journey. And there's also something to be said for the way that you sort of honed in on that through that psychology class and you were able to see what was going on. And that could have been a little bit of why there was some backlash. Sometimes when you're the one that sees the forest for the trees, you know, it's it's because I think I think in a family situation like that, right, there's a there's a dynamic, you know, and, and everybody kind of plays their part and they play their role. And you're like, you know, I think I have a different role. And right. maybe you upset the apple cart a little. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Because um, when I first got into the mental health field, I, you know, only worked with children. And part yeah. of what we were taught in working with children is the kid who's acting out the most yeah. is most likely trying to bring attention to an unseen dynamic within the family. Yeah, they have. In, so in, in the family dynamics of recovery, they have sort of the roles that people play. And I think they're similar to a lot of um, dysfunctional family dynamics. But you have like the hero, the mascot, the lost child. You know, I was like the lost child kept to myself. Um, and then you have the one, like you said, that that acts out, that's trying to... Um, you know, they're they're sort of the scapegoat. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're the ones that everybody can, you know, there's something wrong with my son, fix him. And, you know, as therapeutic people, it's like, well, actually, <laughs> there's a whole <laughs> dynamic here. I don't, we don't think it's your son at all, you know. But the thing people, I think, don't get is so much of those beliefs are so innate 
you know, because we're so, you're, you're so young, right? We're so young when those relationships are being formed with the mothers and the fathers and the brothers and the sisters and the people that maybe aren't functioning the way they should. And while those things are happening, your brain is being developed. And right. so these patterns become so innate, mm-hmm. you know, where where it, it, it can be, it can just take a long time to retrain our brains and how we relate to other people because of those family dynamics. You know, if you were told, you know, you're no good or you're stupid or something Mm -hmm. like that, if this started when you were so, so, so very young, it a lot of times can take a lot of years of just retraining your brain or psychotherapy. And that's not to say that everybody needs psychotherapy, but things like that to where we can really retrain our brain, you know? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, Because that kind of goes back into like parenting. And um, I've written a parenting book and I'm hoping to hear back from a publisher soon. (laughs) So, but the book is called The Parenting Treatment Plan. And Uh I do talk about exactly what you're saying that, you know, um, up until somewhere around 12, you know, a child's brain is working on different brain waves than an adult's brain. And, you know, those um, beta and delta brain waves, they're sponges, basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They they just kind of absorb whatever messages, you know, are around the child at that time. And then once they get past, you know, that age of 12, those messages get locked in unless you have some way. And and I'm not saying it always has to be through psychotherapy or anything like that. There are practices out there that help you to input different messages into your subconscious mind now. But unless you know what they are and you have some guidance in terms of how do you do that, then yeah, they are stuck in your adult brain (laughs) until something happens to change those messages. Right. And I think a lot of people don't realize there are a lot of treatments and exercises and and programs and cognitive behavioral techniques and a lot of things that we can do to help ourselves. And once we see that, it can really be um, eye-opening and it can really be like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. (laughs) I didn't know that there were ways to change this, that I'm not, you know, trapped in this place. And that's what I think is so, so exciting. Right. Um, I'm right there with you. Um, And just kind of coming back to another skill, because you'd asked about skills and we were talking about this and it reminded me of a different skill. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So um, one of the things that I do share with a lot of my clients in terms of a subconscious technique that helps you to change some of those belief systems. One, if you've already done some amount of work and you're aware of some of those subconscious beliefs that you have about yourself. If you Mm -hmm. see yourself as unworthy or unlovable, um, if you see yourself as a failure, um, whatever that may be, if you already have some idea of what those beliefs are that you would like to change, then the technique is that you write them down, first of all, and you write down what it is you want to be instead of those things. 
So mm-hmm. if you see yourself as unworthy, then you write it down in a positive and possessive statement saying, I am worthy, not right. I will be worthy. I'm going to be worthy, but possessive that this is what I am. Mm-hmm. Um, if you believe yourself as unlovable, then you write down the statement, I am lovable. Um, the statement, I am enough, <laughs> like whatever comes to mind as to what you actually want to put into your subconscious mind. Um, After you've written those statements, you record it. Like all smartphones nowadays have a recording, you know, app or something that's available. So you record yourself saying these statements. I always encourage people listen to them because if there's anything in that recording that you don't like, you don't like the tone of your voice, there's a background noise, anything that is going to draw the attention of your conscious mind to criticize and judge, then you need to re-record it because the whole idea is we're going to keep your conscious mind out of this. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah. So re-record it until it's something that you like. And then all you need to do is when it's time for you to go to bed, put your earbuds in, your headphones, whatever you're comfortable with, and listen to this on repeat. A minimum of five minutes, but if you can stand leaving it on until you fall asleep, that's the best thing to do. Um, Because the idea is for adults to have access to those beta and delta brain waves that you did when you were a child, you have to be in between that awake and sleep kind mm-hmm. of fuzziness. Yeah. <laughs> and so in five minutes, you may not necessarily be there. You need at least five minutes of your subconscious mind, those beta and delta brains, brain waves being exposed to this message. It needs to be exposed for a minimum of five minutes. So that's why I say, hey, leave it on until you fall asleep, because if you're kind of in and out of this state, at some point in time, you'll probably add up to five minutes. (laughs) Right. And so you listen to this recording, you know, whenever you wake up, you can take your headphones off, stop it, whatever. Do this consistently for three weeks. After about three weeks, you will start to notice different changes. And there will be very subtle changes, such as, hey, that incident happened and I didn't think that I must be the problem. You know, so subtle things like that will start to change. Um, And then once you get to the point where you go to put the recording on and you feel kind of like a resistance to it, like, do I really want to do this? Then you're done. That that's kind of like (laughs) your body's way of saying, hey, this has done its job. It's time for us to move on. I love that. What do you call that? I don't have a formal name for it. It's just kind of like I tell my clients it's the subconscious um, mind activity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is good. This is kind of like EMDR, you know, for those of you that don't know and, and, and dream stuff, it's not, not like all weird and all hypnosis and all that (laughs) stuff. It's just, it's just getting your, you know, thoughts in the other side of your brain, right? Because one of the reasons that we dream is as we're sleeping, a lot of times our mind is trying to work through the day, work through problems, work through trauma. And that's the side of the brain that it uses to do that, right? So that's why a lot of times we can be super mad and then we wake up and we're kind of over it because a lot of times those dreams are processing. So, Because like I can always tell by my dreams if I'm in an anxious state. I can tell what's going on with me 
mentally by the state of my dreams. If I'm running, if I'm having anxiety in the dreams, it's because my my brain, you know, this is how we were created. My brain's trying to work this stuff out. And so that's, I think, really just another way of doing that, you know? Right, right. And I forgot to add one more thing about that. While you're listening to the recording, if you can, just imagine how you would feel if you woke up and all those statements were true. So there's a piece of this activity where it really gets um, a lot of traction and it really kind of, um, I don't know, puts it into hyperdrive, I guess. Right. Um, By pairing the message with emotion. Yeah, no, and and that makes a lot of sense. And and then maybe thinking like, okay, what would life be like if all this were true? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what would I like to believe? What would I like my life to be like that kind of forward thinking, I think can be, be super helpful too. The other thing too, is I think for a lot of people, there's reasons, you know, why we, we do certain things. And so looking at, so like for me, there were certain ways of coping that worked really well for me, perhaps, you know, maybe even kept, I don't I want to say kept me alive, but kept me sane mm-hmm. when I was young. And then a lot of times as we get older, those patterns, we get out into the real world and they don't work, right? And you may have found right. this too with how mm-hmm. you had to cope with your mom. So there may have been ways that you tiptoed and, <laughs> and around people and then you get in the real world and, uh, you know, you start to realize something's not working. And that's kind of what happened to me with a codependency was I started to realize something's not working. I always end up with the same type of friends, the same type of people, the same situations, the same (laughs) relationship Mm -hmm. at, you know, and then I started to look back and, and, and so I think, I think to reduce the shame, it's like helping people understand, you know, we do things for a reason and Mm -hmm. um, a lot of what, what we may be doing really worked for us back then. And so it's not anything to be ashamed of. It it, it, pro- it may have kept us alive, right? It may have kept mm-hmm. you alive. Right. But now it, we have to learn new ways. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, you know, I think, every, oh, I can't go to therapy. I can't get help. There's, there's something wrong with me. It's like, not, mm-hmm. no, there's actually no. probably nothing wrong with you. You're probably just you know, learned how to cope in the way that you knew how, you know? Right, right. And and you're talking to a very real dynamic because in the moment you're acting out of survival and, you know, you came to rely on that particular set of coping skills Mm -hmm. because after trial and error, you figured out these are the ones that worked. (laughs) Right, right. You know, so then it helped you to survive. And of course you, felt like, okay, when this happens, this is what you do. Um, because that is your pattern of experience. This is what works. And over time, it always becomes maladaptive. You know, over time, it definitely stops working because you're no longer in that situation, but you're consistently trying to apply skills that are now outdated. Right. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And and I know that was like an example for me would be sort of this, the male authority figures. So for those of you who are listening, like what in the world does this look like? A lot of times in a maladaptive environment growing up, 
will sort of recreate these situations because we keep trying to fix it. And that's what mm-hmm. I realized I was doing. Well, you know, if, if I maybe my boss will love me if I do this or, you know, and so um, I was very afraid of male authority figures, you know, the daddy wound, all the sorts of things. And and um, I just kept getting into the same situation with bosses, with men, with male authority figures. And I was trying to kind of recreate a scenario from childhood and hoping that eventually I would fix it. And once I understood that it wasn't going to be fixed, and I and I started to understand what was triggering me and what I was doing, it was very right. freeing. Because then I was like, oh my gosh, okay, he's not my dad. <laughs> he's just my boss. <laughs> like, right. he's just a dude that puts his pants on the, you know. And once I understood it, it was like, and I, and I actually had a therapist say, God's not meant to, to fill... You know, he has his role, and it's not necessarily to be your sister or to be your mom. And sometimes we just have that hole, he said. And once you can figure out that you might always have that hole, like you might always have the daddy hole, but that you could go on and live a really productive life knowing that, it was like, oh, oh you know like I get it (laughs) you know and that's not to say that there isn't complete healing out there I'm just saying you know just just when we understand like our weird behavior and sort of the why we're doing stuff it can be very freeing you know oh yeah absolutely um another thing that I often tell my clients is as human beings it's very difficult for us to let go of things we don't understand And so that's part of us constantly repeating these patterns because we're trying to understand them. But Mm. the problem is we're repeating the exact same thing over and over and over again. (laughs) Right. Right. So it's kind of like that definition of insanity. Right. Where And it takes a long time to come to that point where you can kind of see and and be like, okay, you know, it's just like with addiction or boundaries and stuff like that. It's it's, you know. If someone in our life is an addict and we want to have better boundaries, it's looking at, okay, what I've been doing isn't working. Maybe I need to try something else, you know? And right. that's what I try to do. It's like, okay, I've been in down this road 12 times. So it's just try something different, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean. It definitely would be nice if we could catch on sooner than later. But, you know, oftentimes we're all kept caught in that repetitive cycle. (laughs) I think so. I mean, I think so. For me, I mean, I'm 50 and I'm like, oh, at 50 years old, I'm finally kind of figuring it out. That's crazy. But that's, you know, that's sometimes I think how long it takes to get there, you know, and I mean, it is what it is. Well, talk to me real quick about parenting. You said in your email, every life pattern starts with our upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, placing it in the forefront to our understanding, placing parenting in the forefront to our understanding ourselves, paving a healthy future for our children. It's, and you are a, I don't have kids, but you are mm-hmm. a mom of like five boys. Yes. Is that, is that, oh Correct. my word. <laughs> All right. I think it's easy for people to put it in words of, yeah, parenting is important and then completely lose sight of that when they're in the moments of parenting. Um, 
because the reality is like when you start parenting your own children, like there's so many different dynamics that show up. There's the dynamics you were exposed to in your childhood. There's the dynamics, you know, between you and your partner at that time. Like there's the dynamics of you and the expectancies of the community around you. Like there's so many different things that show up in that moment that that then complicates parenting beyond all reason. Right. Because you're like, okay, do I do the thing that, you know, I learned from my parents? Do I do the thing that I think is right for me? Do I do the thing that I think is right for my kid? Do I do the thing that my partner is advocating for is right? Or do I do the thing that the environment around me is telling me is right? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Wow. (laughs) So there's so many different things that come into play that complicate parenting so much. And part of, um, in my book, I'm really just trying to take a lot of that out and let's come back to the basics. And I try to identify the basics as there are two main goals to parenting. Mm -hmm. One is for the parent to become the authority figure. And two is for the child to learn how to make good choices. Um, and that is really what I'm referring to in the other statement that I sent you that you're, um, upbringing is a foundation to everything because it's your upbringing that essentially teaches you how do you make choices? What are the factors that you take into consideration to choose A over B, you know? And once you get into your adult life, you learn whatever it is that you're working with in that moment is the culmination of all the choices you have made. Mm. Regardless of what has happened to you or around you, you made choices. Yeah. Or or you didn't. And I, I what you said just resonates with me as a recovering codependent. I learned this kind of helplessness and I didn't learn how to make choices. Like I was not mm-hmm. taught how to make choices. And so I think the, the point of it was that for me and for so many people, and I say this a lot, that struggle with addiction and other anxiety and depression, I feel like we feel like we're making choices outside of ourselves. We're doing things we don't even want to do because we don't believe we have a choice. And most normal people do not understand that. Like they don't understand that there's actually people in the world that don't believe they have a choice, (laughs) you know, because of the way they were maybe controlled or manipulated or experienced abuse or experienced trauma. And so I think what you're saying is so key to parenting, just that if we can teach people to make choices. Like you could say no to doing drugs. You could say no to having sex with that guy. You could say no to those things that for me, I never learned to say no. So I did all those things. Mm-hmm. And so I think just the, the, the self belief or the self efficacy and the choices are such a huge part of parenting. It sounds simple, but yet it's so big, you know, and that's really what I stay focused on in my parenting. And a, a lot of people, you know, the people who have read, you know, the manuscript and everything, they're like, oh my gosh, this is like so, you know, helpful and revealing because it's not about bashing people for knowing or not knowing or repeating Mm -hmm. behaviors or anything like that. It's just basically saying, if you focus on these 
two things. Every time you have an interaction with your child, instead of all the different 15 other things, just come back and focus on these two things. How are you showing up as the authority figure and how are you providing your child choices? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that simplifies everything. I came to this conclusion trying to break down the type of parenting that I experienced, you know, with my dad and, you know, recreating that relationship I had with him with my own kids. And I tell you, having five sons, mm-hmm. <laughs> this approach eliminates power struggles, it eliminates arguments. It, you know, eliminates any type of back and forth that you have with your kid. Like my boys don't argue with each other. They're not always best friends, but they also know that there's a certain level of respect that they have with each other. And if they have a problem that they feel like they can't work out themselves, then we sit down together and we do it, you know, and I say, hey, look, you guys can either talk to yourselves or you're going to do it the mom way. And, you know, sometimes they look at each other and they say, let's do it the mom way. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) But this is how my household runs. And I have, you know, a personal relationship with each one of my boys where we can talk about what's going on in his life and, you know, what is it he needs and he wants and his perceptions and things like that. And I'm always coming back to his choice. Like, what is it you want for your life? Because I'm not that parent that's trying to live vicariously through my kids and, oh, you got to do it this way. You got to do it that way. No, this is your life. And whatever choices you make, you have to deal with the consequences, not me. And see, you're also developing that autonomy, which is so important because now he's looking at if if I because right, if I have choices, then I am an autonomous human being separate from you. And so many people that this is the root of all their problems. They come out of a family system without their own identity. Mm-hmm. And then it's like you're trying to make choices and you're going to listen to everybody else. You know, I did that for most of my life. And now yeah. I'm 50 going you know, I have regrets. I wish I wish I had known. I wish I had known. You know, now that I'm getting my therapy degree, I'm like, oh, I had choices and autonomy and, you know, all these things where we think we're supposed to give people advice. Right. It's like, no, we're actually supposed to make them, <laughs> you know, empower them to make their own choices because that's the only way to freedom. It really is the only way to freedom. And, and it, you know, it can be challenging for sure. Well... <laughs> This has been great, Helen. I I really appreciate you coming on and and chatting. Appreciate you having me. How can people get in touch with you, your podcast, your your book, uh, which isn't out yet, but it will be, (laughs) and all those sorts of things. (laughs) So um, I am on Twitter and lots of other social media under What Would Helen Say? Okay, Um, cool. And the podcast is the same name. So you can find the podcast on pretty much every platform that's out there. I do have a video version where you only see me um, in the video version of the podcast on YouTube. My website is HelenVHicksCounseling.com. So um, all the information of how to reach me, send me an email, um, call me, (laughs) whatever you'd like to do, all that information is there. 
Okay, cool. All right. Well, Helen, thank you so much again. And thanks, friends, for listening to Genuine Life Recovery. Again, you can leave a review on iTunes, whatever app you're listening through. And you can listen by clicking podcast at jodystevens.org. And of course, always looking for great guests to share their experience, knowledge, personal stories, expertise on addiction, recovery, and mental health challenges. And you can email me as well. It's genuine life at jodystevens.org, J O D I E S T E V E N S, jodystevens.org. So thank you, friends, for listening, and we will talk to you next time.